Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Welcome to Take It Away, the complete Paul McCartney archive podcast. We are back with Take It Away, the complete Paul McCartney archive podcast. We started with McCartney in 1970, and now here we are with McCartney 2, 10 years later. We see the dissolution of Wings. Paul McCartney's about to start his solo career. You know, this album's a weird album. It's pulled together as a one-man band project. Chris, what do you think of this album? I find it charming. I find it a bit mysterious. Okay, yeah. It's probably the low point for me in terms of the stuff we've talked about. Wow, okay, so... Which doesn't mean I don't find a lot to like about it, of course. Since the other low points were probably Wings Wildlife and Wings at the Speed of Sound, and I found a lot to like on both of those, and I find a lot to like on McCartney too. So for me, this is going to be an interesting podcast today because this is one of my favorite Paul McCartney albums, top five easily. Top five. Yeah. 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 Bottom five for me. So here, you know, here we are. We're going to have a very interesting conversation today. Ryan, can you tell us a little bit about how you discovered this album and what that experience was like? You know, back when I was first collecting these McCartney albums, this was... I got this album after I had heard Back to the Egg, after I had heard Ram, Band on the Run, Red Rose Speedway, all the stuff we've already done. I also had heard stuff from the 90s, Flaming Pie, uh, a couple tracks off of Flowers in the Dirt. So, you know, I had known okay. of a lot of McCartney's oeuvre at the time. But when it came to this record, uh, you know, not many people had discussed it. On the All the Best record, you have the live version of Coming Up. And I was like, okay, this is cool. This song is great. Why is this a live version? And then when you start to dig into where this comes from, oh, it's off of this album, McCartney 2. Uh, okay, this, what, another? Oh, this is exactly like McCartney 1. He just did it all by himself. Set up a studio, you know, the machine did it all in. But then you turn the thing on, and you're like, wait, this is different. This is very <laughs> it's strange. Totally different. Yeah. 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 It's sort of conceptually the same, but sonically, aesthetically, totally different. And there are some parallels. He has a song off of each McCartney record that's a huge hit in its own way. Coming up was an actual chart hit. Maybe I'm amazed. Everybody believes that he, this is one of the best songs he's ever written. You have ballads, you have instrumentals, you have stuff that's just straight up experimental. 
But this album really kicks it up a notch. Yeah, it kicks it up a notch in terms of experimentation and also the one-man band aspect is, I think, even deeper on McCartney too. Because on McCartney, after all, the reason that album works a lot better for me is that it has these cornerstone tracks that were done at Abbey Road or at Morgantown where he had some help yeah. recording. McCartney 2 is 100% solo McCartney, doesn't even have the Abbey Road moment really. So yeah, it goes further as a one-man band venture. Well, one-man band, one-man engineer. Well, yeah. So, I mean, the whole story, I, have, I pulled this quote from McCartney himself. I wasn't trying to do an album. It was just for my own satisfaction. But in the end, I got a few tracks and I played it to a couple of people and they said, oh, I see. That's your next album. So then I got serious on it and tried to make an album. He was just right. screwing around. We're off of Back to the Egg, which, you know, he called that his bomb-sapped album. He's just trying to rediscover music and have a little bit of fun, and that's why I love this album so much. I can hear that in this record itself, and then you really hear it on the stuff that he left off of the album or turned into B-sides. I dislike it for the exact same reason. Okay. That it, sounds like, it sounds like demos and doodles to me, except for a couple tracks. A couple tracks are pretty special. We'll get to those. We'll get but to those. by and large, this sounds like a big batch of, of demos, like Rude Studio type stuff. Right. Maybe it's a little better done than Rude Studio, but so it just doesn't meet the uh, Paul McCartney expectations for me. And and the album McCartney did, because you had junk and you had Every Night and these big, you know, these big songs. Interesting. Chris, tell me about your introduction to this album. Yeah, I picked this album up in the summer of 1984. I think I've mentioned before that I had these fortuitous pairs with Paul McCartney albums. So I got Tug of War and Pipes of Peace at the same time, and I got Band on the Run and Venus and Mars at the same time. Every one of them worked out you know, through this, that early McCartney period. Yeah. So I got Back to the Egg and McCartney 2 at the same time. Okay. And I should mention that on the same shopping spree, I also got Walls and Bridges and Rubber Soul, the American Rubber Soul. Mm. Needless to say, Rubber Soul dominated the listening from that trip. Yeah, yeah, of course. But Back to the Egg was a close second, with the other two kind of falling by the wayside a little bit. McCartney 2, as of 1984, I was uh, 11 years old that summer, and I'd already heard a ton of synthesizer music at that point. So I was neither put off nor particularly impressed by the synthesizers. I thought it was cool that he was doing that on an album, but it wasn't, it, it wasn't novel to me. And the synthesizers aren't good enough to carry these weak songs. Mostly weak songs. Yeah, yeah, mostly. So the synthesizers definitely aren't a problem for me, but they don't sell the album for me either. Got it. Yeah. Part of why I'm bringing up the summer of 1984 is that this is when synthesizers were still relatively novel right. compared to today. And expensive, you know. You know it was and like, well, am yeah. I going to buy a car or am I going to buy an ARP? Yeah, but you know, I'd, I'd already been into Tomita and John Carpenter soundtracks and stuff like that. 
by the time I heard McCartney 2. So McCartney 2 didn't sound that impressive. Got it. We'd already been warmed up a little with with a little luck, mm-hmm. right? There's some. We'll come back to that. That's interesting. That's interesting. If you if you think of the synthesizer work on with a little luck, it still holds up. It's very very good. Yeah. This is the, a lot of this synthesizer work is a step backwards from that. I've never thought of that before. I suppose it's all analog stuff, but it starts to sound digital. Well, this is what he who is working with. We'll just get this out of the way. He's on a Studer A80 16 track machine to record. He had Eddie Klein as his engineer, but Paul really did everything. Eddie just set the machine up. He had a Roland Jupiter 4, beautiful keyboard. A Mellotron, the same Mellotron that the Beatles used on Strawberry Fields Forever. A Mini Moog, a Yamaha CS80, an ARP Pro Soloist, you know, people probably know that as the, the ARP 2600. And he was playing a Yamaha bass and a Fender Jazz bass. So he's not even on the Rick or the Hoffner here. Just very simple stuff, a lot of synthesizers, and then he had a drum set, of course. He's often playing drums on top of his drum machine, right? That's right. Which sounds pretty good, actually. It's a pretty good idea. Use the drum machine, but then augment the bass and snare with something live. Sounds good. It's a really, really good idea. Anyway, before we confuse the listeners with all of this, we should just dive headfirst into... A song that comes from these sessions that not many people probably know the source of. Wonderful Christmas time. The mood is right. The spirit's up. We're here tonight. And that's enough. Simply having a wonderful Christmas time. Simply having a wonderful Christmas time. The party's on, the feeling's here, that only comes to time of year. Simply having a wonderful Christmas time, simply having a wonderful Christmas time. The choir of children. This is a McCartney 2 record. It is indeed. It was recorded in the summer. On a hottest day in July, I believe are Paul's words. This thing was released the 16th of November in 1979. Did not chart. It just came out. But now it makes Paul McCartney about $400,000 a year. <laughs> Every year. Hasn't he made $15 million or something like that on that record? Yeah. It's played incessantly at Christmas time, and I don't mind it. It's a pretty fun little track. It's a fun track. The chord progression is interesting. 
people really pull this one apart for being silly or it's a christmas song <laughs> it's a christmas song yeah just let it be what it is it's fun so i've no problem yeah it's a too. childhood favorite of mine i remember hearing it on the radio you could count on hearing it a few times at christmas so I am Look lucky to enough to have the 45 of this. I, I hunted one of these down. So this is Christmas. And what have you done? Another year over. And you won't just be gone. And so this is Christmas. Lennon had written a Christmas song, but about nine or ten years earlier, Happy Christmas or Happy Xmas, The War Is Over, released December 1st, 1971 in the U.S., November 24th, 1972 in the U.K., so actually a year later. And this song was not really a hit in the U.S. until the untimely death of John Lennon. So December 1980. Right. It was very much, very much in line with John Lennon's style and his message around that time in 71, 72. Pro-peace statement and a political statement. And a, you know, a song with a, you know, we were just talking about wonderful Christmas time being goofy, but I guess Christmas songs don't have to be goofy because Happy Christmas War is Over has a pretty serious tone to it. Happy Christmas War is Over maybe has a more timeless appeal. It's Definitely yeah. artistically, I would say better. You know, sure. McCartney goes for the big box office smash. Is the box office smash always timeless? No. Is yeah. the artistic piece of work timeless? G- generally, Happy Christmas War that could have been recorded this year. I don't think yeah. Wonderful Christmas Time is anything but late seventies, early eighties <laughs> record production. And definitely. And you can tell, I mean, it's something he just sort of came across and recognized it as vaguely Christmassy and then went for it. Yeah. You know, you can see how it, it was a product of those sessions. Yeah, I love that McCartney's was recorded in July, though, as you had stated before. That's hilarious. Now, the B-side on that one, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reggae, that's from Venus and Mars period. That's right. What a th- That's yeah. just a throwaway. I don't like that tune at all. It's a all. throwaway. Yeah, it's just, is that Paul on violin on that fiddle? You know I what? Guess you I, should call it. I think so. Yeah, I think he just did it, you know, in between real sessions and perfect B-side material. <laughs> it's, it's nice that he had it handy. Yeah, that's not showing up on any fantasy lists. 
So to set the stage for this album, there are two songs we want to discuss. I Can't Write Another Song from 1978, and then another tune called Give Us a Chord, Roy, which there's some debate, but Chris and I place it either 78 or 79. Could be a little earlier, could be a little later. We're not entirely sure. Could be 77 as well. Yeah. But it, the point is that these are both from London Town period. Exactly. So the first, yeah. I Can't Write Another Song, which we'll play right here, very much in the songwriting style and production tone of London Town, but you can hear the beginning of the McCartney 2 sound style. I can't write another song as long as you keep leaving. Day by day my nights are long, but I keep on. Yeah, it's got a bit of a bit of a Scottish folk song feel to it or something in the chorus. Yeah. Yeah, I mean yeah. he could be coming off the Mull of Kintyre writing period. It's simple. Mm-hmm. This one could have definitely been developed. It wasn't. We have it as it is. That's just fine. And then there's Give Us a Chord, Roy, which we think originates from 78. Right. And this also seems very proto-McCartney too. Even though it's not heavy with synthesizers, it, it has this homebrew feel, this rude studio feel, and also a dance music-y quality. Yeah. It reminds me a lot, a repetitive dance music quality that reminds me a lot of the McCartney too feeling. Give Us a Corduroy is a great little number. It has a horrible set of lyrics that he could have easily yeah. worked on. Not sure why this one didn't didn't make it out. Well, it looks as if it was revisited during the final Wings sessions. So maybe the lyrics were revised. The title was revised. It's listed in those sessions as Here's the Chord Roy. I don't know, I don't know how promising that is, but he liked it enough to get it out again. So these two tracks clearly set up at least the experimentation and recording production that Paul, had, you know, he had started. He always records his demos at Rude Studios or most of them. Yeah. And let's not forget, you know, something like With a Little Luck recorded on the boat with yeah. nice new synthesizers. And for that matter, Cafe on the Left Bank the title track London Town these are strong keyboard and synthesizer tracks done in kind of you know ad hoc studio situations so there's some precedence around 77 and 78 for the McCartney 2 sound 
So we find Paul the summer of 1979 off of the Back to the Egg sessions. Not really pleased with how everything went with Back to the Egg. He holds up on his property with all the gear that we had spoken about. And just in six weeks, from June to July 1979, he records this entire project. He originally intended to just do it for himself. I'm going to make these recordings, maybe put them on a cassette when I have something to drive around with. Yeah, I love that. (laughs) You know. Hey, what do you think of this? Play it for a friend, you know. What a wild little idea. Somebody, I don't know who, probably a record label guy, could have been Linda, was like, this is your next album. You got to put this out. And he did. And he tried to put it out as a double LP, actually, with 18 tracks. Right. A few of those that were cut off or found their way into B-sides are Check My Machine, Secret Friend, Blue Sway. Bogey Wobble, Mr. H. Adam, You Know I'll Get You Baby, and All You Horse Riders. A lot of real weird music, to say the least. Yeah, had that album come out, it would have confused a lot of people. Yeah. Even more than McCartney 2 already confused people. (laughs) Let's just dive into the track list, and we'll get to all those bonus tracks, those extra tracks. Um, yes. with side one coming up. up well this is one of the greatest things ever yeah i i love this song i love both versions of the song even john lennon liked this song i especially love this studio version though this is a great little record he definitely had a good day when he laid down the basic tracks for this because what a groove it has yeah what a good feeling rhythmically it has and it's based on a it is based on a beatbox or a drum machine of some kind right with Real drums laid over it. Despite that, it really has a good feel. A great feel. A really nice set of lyrics. You know, coming up, the turn of that phrase. It's just this song about positivity. and He revisits his Helen Wheels voice for the vocal. And uses a tape machine to pitch himself up a little on the really, really high falsettos. Sounds great. Sounds really, really good. Now, this was the first single released off of the album. So the album itself was released the 16th of May in 1980. This one came out just about a month before, April 11th, 1980. And it was originally issued, you know, with coming up, the studio version on one side, coming up a live version from Glasgow, or a recording of Wings. It hit number one in the U.S. It made it to number two in the U.K. And it actually broke a small record the live version replaced the solo version on the charts in the U.S., making it the first and only track which reached the top of the Billboard charts in two versions, one following the other. And making it Wings' last hit. 
Absolutely their last hit. So there was another mm. version of this that had Lunchbox Odd Socks as a B-side. Yeah, I wanted to point out that my true introduction to this album was that single, which I found in a drugstore in the middle of a tiny town in the middle of nowhere in North Carolina sometime in 1984 before I, I got the LP. Crazy. And what a weird thing to find... You know, on the B side, two tracks, first of all, which is already a strange, you know, McCartney thing. And then, yeah, it it turns out the hit is one of the two tracks on the B side. Mm -hmm. The actual thing you heard on the radio was that. And then there's Lunchbox Odd Socks, which, by the way, is also from Venus and Mars period. And he had all these McCartney 2 leftovers from the double LP that he could have put on that B side. For some reason, Lunchbox Odd Socks made its way on there. (laughs) Ridiculous. (laughs) Had to be crammed onto a B-side with two tracks. It's just so strange. That was a a neat way to be introduced to the McCartney 2 ethos, I guess. That's a great way. um, Clark's Drugstore in Warsaw, North Carolina, on like the main street of a really small town in North Carolina. (laughs) They had a few 45s, and I I found it there. That's, That's amazing. It's a great record. What's going on with the saxophone? That's him on sax, huh? I think so. It's either that or the... I can't believe it's not a real sax. I'm sure it's doubled with synthesizers in some parts, but the really fast double-tonguing part, I guess he must have recorded it a little slow so that it would sound faster because you'd have to be pretty good to double-tongue that fast. Yeah, it's it's or a really single tongue or however he's doing it. That's a complicated lick too. If you pull that lick yeah. up, it's bizarre. I did check the McCartney 2 archive book and if you look at the the track list for that song, you do see that the two final tracks, 15 and 16 are listed as sax, not as synth sax, but as sax. sweet thumping bass on this track. The bass line's amazing. I love the chord progression. Of course John Lennon loved this one. I, I mean, I guess the story was Lennon was being driven by Fred Seaman through Cold Spring Harbor, Long Island, when he first heard coming up on the radio. And he said, fuck a pig, it's Paul. And then once the song was over, he's like, oh, not bad. And then he asked his assistant Seaman to buy him a copy and set up a brand new stereo system for him in his bedroom just so he could listen to it. And he, the next day, he told Seaman, it's driving me crackers, this song. He loved it. And yeah. McCartney still plays this song live. I don't know if it's every show, but it definitely makes its way into a lot of the sets. Well, it's a good crowd pleaser. It's a good live song. Mr. Mox, I 
won't need her long. All I need is help for a little while. We can take dictation and learn to smile. And a temporary secretary is what I need for to do the job. I need a So that brings us to the next track on the album, Temporary Secretary. Ryan, what do you think of this track? Oh, it's a great song. Absolutely great. And actually releases a single, the third single off the album, September 19th, 1980. It didn't chart, and it makes sense why if you've listened to the song, but it's I love it. <laughs> oh, I totally love it. It's, it's one of the outstanding moments of this project for me, all of the McCarty 2 sessions. It's a moment where the experimentation really did lead to something. And I know it's considered a polarizing song, and I could see how someone could, if they have the right mindset, be driven crazy by temporary secretary. But I think it's fascinating. And as a matter of fact, the B-side on that single was Secret Friend. Yeah. The 12-inch single, it was the, the 10 and a half minute Secret Friend. And that's a good companion. That's We'll come to it soon enough. But that's a good companion for Temporary Secretary because both of those songs really seem to me to be very pure, very distilled versions of the McCartney 2 aesthetic. And I think Paul knew that. I think that's why they chose this as the third single. Do you know that only 25,000 copies of the 12-inch single were made? I know that when I've tried to purchase it online, it's routinely $60. Yeah. Because it was only 25,000 copies, the thing sold out in 16 hours. It's amazing. That's every that's great. copy, yeah. So it was a hit of sorts. Yeah, an underground, weird sort of hit. Yeah. I think he likes that. He talks a little bit of, around this album and Back to the Egg about the idea that they're a bit underground, at least in the context of his work, it's a little underground. Not intended to be a big hit. Not at all. And it has a good set of lyrics. You know, the Mr. Marks is the agency, and Paul did have temporary assistance from time to time. This is mm. just Paul's subconscious coming out. So it's all built around this sequencer. It reminded him of a typewriter or teletype. Yeah, exactly. That's what kind of led to the temporary secretary lyrics. But it's all built on this pretty wacky, I would say microtonal, right? It's not, not only is it not in a key, it's really not in eagle temperament. It's yeah. one of those wacky synthesizer loops that you can get going. It has a nice rhythm to it. If you notice, there's like a little glitch in it. Yeah. There's like an extra extra note for one of them. So he must have programmed it by hand, you know. And, and then just turned it into a loop or played along with it. Which really mm -hmm. is a testament to Paul's musicianship on this record. A belly dancer, I don't need a true romancer. She can be a diplomat, but I don't need a girl like that. She can be a neurosurgeon if she's doing nothing urgent. What I need is a temporary, temporary secretary. Yeah, and the underlying song is chromatic. It uses a strange scale and some strange chords. It's not totally unconventional, but it's not a normal pop song, especially coming right after Coming Up, which is such a straight ahead pop song going straight into Temporary Secretary, which is such an oddity. 
I love the spoken word part. Well, I know how hot it is these days. <laughs> it's just fun. It's a lot of fun. It is for young girls these days In the face of everything To stay on the right track She can be a belly dancer I don't need a true romancer She can be a diplomat But I don't need a girl like that She can be a neurosurgeon So this song made something of a comeback, right? In dance clubs in the 2000s? Yeah He talks about it in the McCartney 2 Archive Edition a little bit He talks about being approached by people who really loved the song and had heard it being played in clubs. It makes sense. It's sort of techno-ish and so eccentric that I I could see it being a, a modest hit. Yeah, there were a few, in my research, artists that have cited this record and this song specifically for inspiring a lot of their music. Like Hot Chip was one of them. You know, obviously, I, I think craft work comes into play here. That's why I love this album. There's a lot to be mined from it because it is so bizarre. It is just a lot of pure McCartney creativity. You don't often get that if it's getting hammered away by a producer. Like he's mm-hmm. obviously an eccentric and weird man in Europe, I believe it's Scotland, just making this stuff up alone. But he's skilled at that by 1979. Yeah. Having already made McCartney and having done a lot of that during the Wings period, too. Yeah. We didn't mention the primitive nature of the setup, that he's actually plugging his synthesizers and microphones and things directly into the back of a tape machine. It's not the exact same setup he had for McCartney, but it's a similar idea. No mixing console, just go straight in, move the mic around to get levels different. But in this case, we have the addition of the synthesizers. Yeah. And he has 16 tracks instead of four. So the next track is On The Way, track three, side A, or the CD. And you know, I don't have many notes on this track other than the fact I just, I happen to like it. It's simple. He, there's a different version of it that is, I've never heard, but he said he produced it in a different way, more of like a rock song. He was just watching on television, a documentary. It was like an old blues documentary. And he changed the style. So he went in, he he knew he had this like sort of bluesy 12 or 16 bar blues thing. And he put this song on top of it. I've never heard any other version of it. That would be interesting. Yeah, here's the quote. I put down a drum track and some bass and that was that. And it sat around for a month or so. The day before going back to it, I'd seen Alexis Corner on a TV program about the blues. And I thought, oh, I got to do something like that. Because that's the kind of music I like. So that's how that song came about. 
I think that's, that's just about it about that one, you know? Yeah, it's a pretty simple arrangement. It reminds me of a demo. It sounds like a Rude Studio demo. Maybe a well-polished, well-thought-out demo, but it's so bare-bones. It doesn't bother me. It's got some good guitar work. It's got that nice echo on the vocal. It's a good vocal. It's a solid little song. Yeah. Going back to McCartney again, this is a song that could use a big production, a good Call Me Back Again type production, in which case it might be a real standout number. Right. But as it is, it's not a good enough song just to present in this bare bones way. No. But it's okay. It, it doesn't disrupt the flow of things too much. Well, from On The Way, we move On The Way to the fourth track of the album, Waterfalls. So this was the second single off the album released June 13th, 1980. The B-side was Check My Machine. In the UK, it made it all the way up to number nine. In the US, it only made it to 106. Terrible. Horrible. And the song had a working title of I Need Love. It was a previously written tune, Back to the Egg Sessions. And... Halfway through this McCartney 2 album, he got bored and he's like, well, I I have this track that I have left over. Let's try this one. And it's great. This is a highlight of the album for me. It's amazing. The highlight of the album for me, actually. Okay. And one of Paul McCartney's most beautiful songs. Don't go jumping waterfalls. Please keep to the Sometimes can make mistakes And I need love Yeah, I need love Like a second needs an hour Like a raindrop needs a shower There's a darkness to it, something genuinely melancholy about it, a song about parental anxiety, basically. Haunting, I guess, is the word I'm looking for about the song and about the production, too. Maybe a nice Abbey Road-type recording of this would be great. I don't know. But I'm actually pretty happy with this recording. You know, warts and all. I'm, I'm good with this recording. And I need love. Yeah, I need love. Like a castle needs a tower. Like a garden needs a flower. Yeah, I need love. Every minute of the day. And it wouldn't be the same if you ever should to go away. All the lyrics were working lyrics, but he left them as is because of the nature of the song. He could have 
cleaned this up in a way and it, you would have lost all the magic. Don't go chasing yeah. something about polar bears. And it, yeah, it's a very strange lyric, but it's cool. And even the ragged vocal works pretty well for me. Yeah, absolutely. He sounds distressed. He sounds anxious. I'm holding in my hand the British 45 of this, which, unlike the American 45, has this really beautiful cover. Ah, it's too bad, you know, that we're a podcast. Maybe we can post some of these on the website. Yeah, exactly. So people can look. This is an especially beautiful cover for a 45 and has the lyrics on the back. This is a nice, nicely made single. The B-side, Check My Machine, actually does clock in at something like six minutes, five minutes and 50 seconds. Well, not a full version, but a long version of yeah. Check My Machine. I think it's a strange coupling. Wouldn't you think the B-side should be one of these days? Yeah. Check My Machine is a pretty wacky, daffy choice for B-side for such a serious song. Or Summer's Day song. There was an orchestral arrangement that was done up for the tune, but was never used. I like the raw nature of it. It's just the simplicity. I love the little music video where Paul combed his hair the opposite mm -hmm. way. And then that Paul McCartney fashion, you know, <laughs> oh, I just decided to comb my hair the opposite way. Okay, right. man. <laughs> Sounds cool. But the production of it is wild. There's a real polar bear in it. He's in this little house and the house like explodes open. He's amongst a fountain. He's in the garden. It's, it's wild. You should definitely check that out. It's a pretty forward-looking video for 1980, actually. Yeah, it really is. Well, it's definitely a highlight of McCartney, too. Absolutely. Absolutely. The next track on the A-side and the final track on the A-side is a little tune called Nobody Knows. And I love this little song. I don't have any notes down on it. <laughs> you don't like it, right? <laughs> well, give me, give me your take on it first. Well, the guitars come in. The whole production sounds bizarre and strange. Like, I don't know exactly how he got all those tones. It has this fun, high energy to it. It's almost like a faxed-in version of something that Paul would have been influenced by in the Beatles. It's like an alternate universe, like 1950s rock and roll song. There's just something really mm. off about it. It like gives me mm. a bit of anxiety when I hear it. I don't know. There's that uh, line in American Hustle where she's talking about the nail polish. She's like, I don't like the smell of the nail polish, but there's something about it that I like because I don't like it. And mm. it's the same sort of thing for me. And I love <laughs> his vocal delivery. You know? Yeah, it's, well, it's in keeping with the McCartney 2 vocal style or stylings. 
And the lyrics are batshit crazy. And the philosophy behind this song is, I don't know what's going on. You don't know what's going on. These experts don't know anything. Our politicians, nobody knows what's going on. I think this is a timely song, actually, for the time we're recording this in 2017. I said nobody knows. Nobody knows. (laughs) Yeah. It just it doesn't work so well for me. It's this is kind of where McCartney two goes off the rails for me, and it, it mostly stays off the rails from here on out. You know, this one it's just a, sort of a basic blues, so I, I can't get excited about something like that. Yeah, I let it go on on the way because the momentum's so good on the album up to that point. And then for me, this is one blues too many. Nothing production wise about it to really save it for me. So verse four, where he's like. I'll pay your rent. I'll do you right most every night. <laughs> it's so funny. <laughs> yeah, there is a there is a sense of humor there with this one. Anyway, let's flip the record over. We've made it halfway through the originally released LP to a place where maybe you and I will agree. Uh, okay. Front parlor. I have nothing to say about this song. I think it's just a waste. Both of the time. From Parlor and Frozen Jap waste. Yeah, I'm glad we can agree on those. Well, the less said about Frozen Jap, the better. As for Front Parlor, there are some wacky synth sounds on there, I'll give it that. But this is B-side material. This is box set material. What's this doing on the album? I have no idea. And this is... I don't have a lot of fantasy baseball to play about this album. Because my feeling is that not much improves it as you move the tracks around. But if you took these two tracks off the album and just put the ten and a half minutes Secret Friend on the album... You'd have a much better album. That's true. Well, let's play a little bit of Front Parlor and give people a chance to hear it for themselves. Ugh, okay, I mean, okay. <laughs> <laughs> So, you know, if you like hearing McCartney tinkering in the laboratory, yeah, there it is. There it is, folks. You want to hear what it sounds like? I mean, the tones are okay. It just doesn't... I want to talk about Front Parlor and Frozen Jap all in one breath, because they're the same song in my head, and I just... I know they're talking okay. head heads influenced, and there's like... Like, Paul talks about interesting production techniques. They're just boring. They don't do anything. They're flat. And I guess they're fine as little souvenirs of the time and of the recording sessions. But I would have yeah. so much have rather had 
Secret Friend, or Blue Sway, or Mr. H. Adam, or All Your Horse Riders. Like, just put one or two of those instead of those two songs. And you're right, mm. Chris. McCartney 2, I think you add a half of a star to it, or at least maybe a whole star, the LP. Yeah, we'll hear more of this kind of thing going forward. We heard it a little on London Town with Cufflink, and here it just seems to take over the album at times. This sort of fooling around with synthesizers and coming up with a nice groove and throwing it on. Another thing he could have done here is he's a master of miniatures and stringing together miniatures. He could have made some pretty interesting mashups with some of this stuff. You know, you had a little fragment of Front Parlor and a little, well, let's leave Frozen Jap off altogether, but, you know, a few fragments like that of Dark Room and other things, you know, that would be pretty fun if it flew by. You got a minute or a minute and a half each. Like Suicide, even on McCartney, one little snippet of it, or... Yeah, Yeah, I'm surprised he didn't do that. Like some turning of the radio dial, like... And then another track. That would have been awesome. You could imagine then, from my point of view, if if I also didn't like Nobody Knows Very Much, I'm feeling kind of depressed about this string of songs. Yeah. (laughs) Well, until you get to track seven, Summer's Day Song. I love this tune. What a great, great song. I I like this tune. What a good song. Okay. Sleeping through a bad dream Tomorrow it will be over For the world will soon be waking To a summer's day You got the Beatles Mellotron on it. This was one of those ones where he was like, all right, well, I have to make an album, so let me put a vocal on it. So in Replica Studios that we met and the Back to the Egg sessions, which is basically just a redoing of Abbey Road in the MPL building in Soho, Mm -hmm. he put this vocal on, which I think is great, mixed in the same afternoon after he recorded it. Look, I'm not saying this is... This is up there with She's Leaving Home or something or Strawberry Fields Forever. But for this album, it's like, oh, thank God. (laughs) A song. Sure. Sure. No, I do feel that way about it. It just, starting with Nobody Knows, for me, there's a lack of momentum. And although I do like Summer's Day song, not quite strong enough to pull up the momentum at that point on the album. So for me, from the end of side one, going through side two, it's a rough ride. Yeah. You're right. This is a bright spot.
Well, after Summer's Day song, we have Frozen Jap, which we already discussed. So the next track, track nine, Bogey Music. I really mm, love the track. Yeah. Oh, hey, man. I love the track, and I love the guitar, the lead guitar line. All that I like that stuff. part. I do like that part. Yeah. But the lyric, based on the book Fungus the Bogeyman from 1977, it's, it's terrible. And the effect, it it's is. ridiculous. <laughs> and other than that chorus part with the guitar you're talking about there, it's, it's another blues with the sort of a funky break remind me what the concept is it's the the bogeymen are dirty they're kind of defiant right they're dirty the bogeymen are dirty and then so the rebel they hate is, music yeah, they, they hate, hate music. it they hate all of that stuff and so the rebel in the book he gets clean and he's seen as this like wild man like oh no you can't clean yourself up that's against, like, you got to be dirty. That's that's the normal thing. So it's like the opposite of what society is. And this is like the music that the people in the book would have listened to. You know, just Paul is completely in a rabbit hole at this point, in a yeah. wormhole. <laughs> This leads us to Dark Room, which it's not really a song. I'd say it's halfway between a song and like a spoken word. It's a lot like Check My Machine. Yeah, it's a lot like Check My Machine. Maybe just a simplified version of that. You know, I mm-hmm. don't I don't love this. I like that it's on the album, but I, I, I don't go back to Dark Room. No, me neither. I do like the speed manipulation on the vocals, the Mickey Mousey vocals on this. He, he delivers these cryptic lyrics with real urgency. Yeah, it's a little creepy. It's if a you little think creepy, of it. yeah. Got a place we can go. Lights are low. Let me show you to my dark room. Come, come along with me. <laughs> come, come, yeah. Weird. Ugh. As with many tracks on this album, there's a longer version, and this was edited down from that. I think the long version is twice as long or something like that. It doesn't bring yeah. anything extra to it, though. One of these days when my feet are on the ground I'm gonna look around and see See what's right See what's there And breathe fresh air One of these days when a job just takes too long I'm gonna sing my song and see See what's right See what's there And breathe fresh air after 
It's there, it's round, it's to be found by you, by me. It's all we ever wanted to be. The next track isn't weak. One of these days. No. Another highlight. No, this is a fantastic song. A beautiful song with a great bridge, a good vocal production. Beautiful record, yeah. Yeah. It sounds like he double-tracked the guitars and the vocals. Either that or there's there's a heavy yeah. delay on the guitar. But it sounds like double-tracking to me. This is one of those songs that Paul, I don't believe, has ever played live. And it's just a little gem on the end of a maligned album that people can discover. It's nice. Yeah. I don't mind this song at all. Yeah. I think this is a great song. It's unlike the rest of the album. It's a standard McCartney folk song. It harkens back a little bit to Mother Nature's Son or something like that. Mm-hmm. But it's it's gentler than Mother Nature's Son, which is saying something because that was pretty yeah. gentle. But it, it's even gentler. It's a song about a, a day in the future when things are peaceful for Paul McCartney or for the every man that he's singing about. It's there. It's round. It's to be found by you, by me. It's all we ever wanted to see. Yeah, it's a great thing. Now, he has a story about this that he met with a Hare Krishna and had an experience with that that made him think about peace, inner peace, and gentler life. And he wrote this song on the basis of that. It's a perfect way to end this album. It's a quick record. It's only 11 tracks, and you're in and out pretty quickly. So, I find it a weak experience overall. Really, a few highlights, but they aren't, you know, even Waterfalls, it's a highlight in a flawed kind of way. It's not a maybe I'm amazed highlight. Mm. I'm not holding up my lighter any, at any point on this album, you know? <laughs> Waterfalls is beautiful, but it's depressing and dark. Coming up is infectious and wonderful, but it's also a bit fluffy, a bit insubstantial. Now, we get into the extra tracks. I don't know where you want to start with that. Yeah, let's talk about Secret Friend, because I love that Me tune. too. The B-side of Temporary Secretary. Yeah. This great, here we are, where we are, was like an old family motto for McCartney. They'd say it to each other. Feel like you've never felt before, once more. That's a nice line. Yeah. yeah. It is a series of great lyrics. The production is just hypnotic. hypnotic. It's 10 minutes and 30 seconds long, but I think it could be longer. I, I love every second of yeah, it. Yeah, <laughs> I don't get bored with the 10 and a half minutes. It, it casts such a spell that it's, it's easy for 10 and a half minutes to fly by.
The melody's fantastic. The melody's yeah. fantastic, and this one really does have cool synthesizer work. I guess he's using the the pitch wheel and modulating this sequence up and down to slightly odd intervals. So it, it, it has a mysterious quality to it. Strange that it's not on the album. It is. But it seems like the Very quintessential strange. McCartney 2 Sessions product. Companion, as I said earlier, for Temporary Secretary, which is another quintessential McCartney 2 track. They go together well with the with the odd sequencer work and and the crafting of a really brilliant melody on top of that. At, you know, at this point, I'd like to mention the band Orchestral Maneuvers in the Dark. They were doing some work mm-hmm. in the late 70s and early 80s that reminds me so much of McCartney 2. This marriage of experimental, in this case, synthesizer and sampler work with very tuneful material. McCartney meets Kraftwerk. So I think the similarity is very strong. You hear these guys, OMD, singing these McCartney-esque melodies over some, some pretty, for the time, cutting-edge use of electronics. The other I really love from this this clutch of unreleased tunes, which, I mean, they're released now, but they weren't at the time, is Blue Sway. And not the version without the overdubs, the version with the 86 overdubs that was intended for hot hits, cold cuts, right. or cold cuts. The orchestrations by 
Richard Niles. Yeah. And a pretty lavish 1986-style state-of-the-art production. Sounds a lot like Press to Play, actually. Yeah, it's really great. And I love that we have it. It's okay that it came out now, because I don't necessarily think it would have worked on Press to Play. Sure. It sounds a lot like Hang Glide. Remember Hang Glide? We'll get to it, but... It yeah. reminds me of that same yeah. studio aesthetic, like slick 80s sound. I like the revised Blue Sway. We should probably play both the original McCartney 2 version, that is to say, Summer 79 version, and the, the 1986 Richard Niles orchestration. That's pretty cool. The original is, you know, the original's pretty un- undeveloped. I can't see the original really being on McCartney, too. No, no. It's not much more than just like an interesting track, but the developed version is yeah, great. Yeah, it is. It's fun. And from there, you have Check My Machine, which has the Hi George Morning Terry quote from a Tweety and Sylvester cartoon called Tweet Zoo. Mm. You know, this is, it's a bass line, and uh, that's about it for a me. pretty hilarious vocal. I can't yeah. hear this song and not crack up hearing his squeaky high voice saying, check my machine over and over. <laughs> it's pretty funny. I don't love the track, yeah. but it makes me chuckle. No, it's not, it's not great. Hi, George. Morning, Terry. Hi, George. Morning, Terry. Check, 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 check
class versus the village people. I do like Mr. H. Adam and all you horse riders and you know I'll get you, baby. Mm. Those three are pretty interesting. Mr. H. Adam, you know, Linda's on. That's right. She has a, a very classic Linda vocal on that. My problem with all three of those is that it's more blues. Well, yeah, especially you know I'll get you, baby. this out to you a couple weeks ago and I'm gonna pull this up now I just need to but the recording order I'd like to just mention the recording order order of these tracks for the album one and two are front parlor and frozen Jap our least favorite songs were recorded first the third song was summer's day song which was just an instrumental and wasn't even turned into a song until the end so if you think of summer's day song as an instrumental it's pretty boring too then it's, you know I'll get you, baby, all you horse riders, and then blue sway. All boring blues. I mean, although all you horse riders, he's doing that interesting thing with the portamento or the glissando on the synthesizer, yeah. where it's like the horse is jumping. Yes, definitely. <laughs> now jump. I like that. That's cool. And he's got a little whinny cool. sound going in the background too. Yeah. Very, he's so these first one, two, what is this? These are like six or seven songs. He's just really figuring out how all of this stuff yeah. works. He's just kind of, you know, he's he's done an EP's worth basically of a bunch of crap. It just to, because he's trying to recreate his sound. He's fed up of wings. He he doesn't want to do that anymore. So the seventh track is temporary secretary, mm. and that's where he just nails it, hits the stride. This crazy, ridiculous recording that we've already discussed. Then 8, 9, and 10 are On The Way, Mr. H. Adam, and Bogey Wobble, which we didn't even discuss. It's just a, another fucking bogey in the Fungi Bungus Man book. This album is recorded June through July. Two months. Six weeks. 
Not a lot of time. So he must have picked up the book for his kids, read the book, Bogey Wobble, that's the instrumental. Then it's Wonderful Christmas Time. So right in the middle of, he gets all this stuff out of the way, records Wonderful Christmas Time. And then each one of the songs he writes after this, at least in my opinion, is better than the last. Dark Room, One of These Days, Secret Friend, Bogey Music, for the most part. Mm. Check My Machine, Waterfalls, Nobody Knows, and Coming Up. Mm. So Coming Up, the number one hit, is the last song recorded. And Waterfalls, if, one of the artistic triumphs, is among the last. Yeah. So if you look at the album in the sense of, well, this is how you write a hit song. You have to write a bunch of songs. You have to figure out your style. You have to do some experimentation. I think that's what makes this album interesting. We've discussed the parallels with the original McCartney, but in some ways it has parallels with Wings Wildlife in the sense that you're getting to hear the man at work in the workshop. You're hearing a document of how he works things out. You know, warts and all. Exactly. If I was in some kind of musicology class, I would write a paper on this. This is how you write a hit song if you're Paul McCartney in the 70s going into the 80s. I think that he should use this method again now and release McCartney 3. Just go take a break and do something entirely by yourself. Let's like, why not? I'm sure I've read the argument somewhere that Chaos and Creation was kind of McCartney 3. Yeah, but in that sense, he's going into a real studio. Working with a tough producer. Working with a producer. And yeah, that's a great album, and we'll get to that album eventually. And you know what, Chris? Maybe he's done it, and we just don't know about it. Could be. Could be. Maybe McCartney 3 was recorded in the 80s or the 90s, and he just kind of, I'm not putting this out. This is that album where I get to just play for people in my car. Well, when you look at the entire pile, what do you think? When you look at the entire pile and then you look at it in the sense of if he hadn't made all of these songs, we wouldn't have coming up. I'm fine with this album. I think it's great. Well, I said at the outset that it was a low point for me, but as I predicted, I sure found a lot to like. And there's nothing else quite like it in McCartney's career. No. In terms of the experimentation with synthesizers in particular, He comes back to it a little with a track called Robber's Ball that we'll discuss next time. But otherwise, he never really comes back to the full-fledged homebrew synthesizer work. Too bad, I could have used a little more. In 86, Paul said, I might have done something different. Synthesizers are cold and thin. They don't sound like real instruments sometimes. But at the time, in 80, he said, synthesizers are amazing things. Instead of spending hours scoring string sections, you can sit down at this machine and get a very similar sound. 86 to 80, like this is the, in the 80s, we've begun the digital revolution. You're starting to see CDs, Pro Tools, yeah, and by 1984, you know, just a, a kid like me, I, I, don't, I was already jaded enough to hear the synthesizers on McCartney 2 as dated and charming. 
Yeah. And that's just four years after it came out. By the late 80s, synthesizers had made a quantum leap. Totally different sound. I find the synthesizer work mostly very charming on McCartney, too. I think it's, it's the most striking feature of this batch. Lennon pointed out that it was an ideal fantasy scenario for McCartney, since he'd essentially always wanted to be a one-man band. Mm. Kind of a dig. Yeah. Paul McCartney, this guy who had this huge success in the Beatles and then Wings, can just make this one-off, weird indie album way ahead of, like, the hipsterdom that we know now. And on top of that, to have a number one single, and I'll go over these very briefly, the album itself was number one in the UK, two in France, three in the United States, four in Austria, five in New Zealand, Norway and Canada and it goes on like it was this album charted because of the singles specifically coming up Mm. so he made a ton of money and sold a lot of copies it went gold in the US gold in the UK he made a lot of money off of what was effectively like a modern indie record it's kind of cool yeah I want to say a couple things, too. Uh, the tour that Wings was meant to go on, which we'll wrap up the podcast here with McCartney's pot bust and then also the untimely demise of John Lennon. So from November 23 to December 17 and 80, they went on this Wings British tour that they were meant to extend to the United States and to other countries. And... Have you ever seen the set list for what they were playing? There's some unusual stuff on there. I'll just run through it real quick and I'll see if you have anything to say. They open with Gotta Get You Into My Life, then Getting Closer, Every Night, Again and Again and Again, I've Had Enough, No Words, Cook of the House, Old Siam Sir, Maybe I'm Amazed, followed by Fool on the Hill, followed by Let It Be, followed by Hot as Sun. (laughs) Followed by Spin It On. (laughs) Wow. Then 20 Flight Rock, Go Now, Into Arrow Through Me, Into Wonderful Christmas Time. And they close the show out with Coming Up, Good Night Tonight, Yesterday, Mull of Kintyre, and then Band on the Run. That's a weird set list. Yeah. Before they got busted, they were working on Baby's Request, Eleanor Rigby, Another Day, and With a Little Luck. Would have been a cool tour. Well, he commented that he didn't feel ready for the tour. Yeah. And he thought they were under-rehearsed, that he felt weird about the fact that they were going to have to arrive and continue rehearsing. He was very nervous about that. He also commented that the pot he had was just way too good to flush down the toilet. Yeah, he said it was like a, some kind of subconscious way to just get rid of wings. Like, I'm done with this. Spent a little more than a week in jail in Japan. 
And he was like cracking people up. Apparently, he was like telling people he didn't lose a sense of humor about it. But I mean, had he been in, maybe in the wrong jail or gotten the wrong judge, he might have spent some time in jail, some real time in jail in Japan, instead of just the nine days that he spent. Could you imagine that? I can't even. Oh, imagine I that. cannot imagine it. I read that he sang a lot in jail. The other prisoners enjoyed hearing him sing. He sort of maintained his sanity by singing a lot. And of course, he wrote Japanese Jailbird, which was his sort of prison diary. And he ended up deciding not to publish it. I would love to read that. Japanese Jailbird is in his safety deposit box, not to be released until after he's dead. Wow. Okay. Something to That's amazing. look forward to, kind of, I guess. <laughs> yeah, I mean, in a... In a dark sort of way, sure. <laughs> anyway. So it's not quite the death of Wings, though. And there are a few more Wings tracks and Wings recordings that we'll talk about in our next podcast. But the next big event is the death of John Lennon. and gunned down in front of the Dakota building in New York City. And this is just days after the release of Double Fantasy, right? Right. He died on December 8th, 1980, and that album was released November 17th, 1980. And, I mean, as it stands, death in the music business, especially of an established star, really does sell records. Mm. And it was a very successful record for him. Do you think the record would have been successful otherwise? You know what? I do. Mm. It was already the big John Lennon comeback. He'd been gone basically yeah. for five years since rock and roll in 75. The Lennon songs on that album are really good. I like every single one of them. And even some of the Yoko I, Ono songs are good. I gotta say, I love some of the Yoko songs. Love some of them. Kiss, Kiss, Kiss. And Give yeah. Me Something. And I'm Moving On. And I'm Your Angel. These are cool songs. All really great songs. Yeah. And to be, did they have Watching the Wheels? Watching the Wheels is a huge artistic achievement. Now, the... Yoko one-two punch at the end of the album is a bit much. Yeah. Neither of those songs are so good, and you're kind of like, where'd John go? Mm. The John songs are among John's best. This seems to be John absolutely in his prime. 
And it really hurts to hear these great songs and realize he was probably about to put out a string of excellent albums. Yeah, and they say meant to work with Paul again. There was buzz about the hit factory in New York that he wanted to write with Paul because he thought Paul was doing something interesting again after 10 years. It really is a shame. Well, in terms of John's contribution, this album is one gem after another. There's really nothing here that I dislike. The ones that are a little more personal tend to bother me slightly, like Dear Yoko and Beautiful Boy. But in terms of just like starting over, cleanup time, I'm losing you, watching the wheels, woman, these are classic John Lennon songs. Yeah. Do you have a favorite here? Watching the wheels. Watching the wheels. Watching the wheels are just like just like starting over are really, really great yeah. songs. Let's play a little bit of each of those back to back. Our life together is so precious together we have grown we have grown although our love is still special let's take a chance and fly away Somewhere alone It's been too long since we took the time No one's to play in mind No time flies so quickly I'm also a really big fan of these two sort of dark songs on side A, Clean Up Time and I'm Losing You. It's great that John Lennon still has that acid in him. I'd like to play a couple of each of those songs here as well. Thank you. 
is in the counting house, counting out the money. The king is in the kitchen, making bread and honey. No friends and yet no enemies, absolutely free. No rats aboard the magic ship, a perfect harmony. So there you have it, folks. That's McCartney 2. Kind of a half-baked but ultimately commercially successful album for Paul McCartney. We find the 80s starting with a tragedy, yet opening up Paul to a new chapter to his solo career that will follow throughout the 80s up next. And we'll finish up the episode with a little something special for John Lennon. Thank you very much. We'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to Take It Away, the complete Paul McCartney archive podcast. That was McCartney 2. Up next, Tug of War. Our theme music is Martha, My Dear, 
by John Lennon and Paul McCartney, realized by Ryan Brady.